You're about to hear my conversation with Shelley Dewan, the director of ESG research for our Better World Boutique. Shelley and I talk all about ESG, what an ESG researcher does, how to think about those types of risks when looking at companies, as well as the investment industry. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Shelley Duan. Shelley is the Director of ESG Research with their Better World Boutique. Shelley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Matt. So happy to be here today. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you decided to join. Uh, I have a, a few questions for you. I thought maybe we'd get started before getting into what a Director of ESG Research is in a bit about your early career. How did you find yourself to become Director of ESG Research? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, you know, it, I guess I should go back to my university days because that's where it kind of started more or less. But I, my background was in psychology and commerce. And I graduated with the intent of going back to school and pursuing postgrad studies in psychology. But I also had student lo- loans to pay. So ended up <laughs> joining um, a credit union in Vancouver, Van City, which is one of the largest credit unions in Canada, very progressive socially, environmentally. Uh, and, and joined them, was with them for a few years on, on the retail space and got a bit bored, decided I needed to go back to school. And by chance, they had a position open up in ethics and uh, you needed a research background and it involved something called ESG analysis. And I'm like, OK, well, this sounds interesting. I, you know, I don't want to do the retail side of things anymore. And I have a research background. And so I applied and I literally this was 2011, was Googling what ESG meant because I had no idea. <laughs> Um, I don't think a lot of people did maybe up until a year and a half ago, uh, but Googled it and, you know, he's got the job. And so what that took me to was joining a small team of three people, the only other people in the entire organization that did ESG analysis, which included Andrew Simpson, who's now the team lead of the Better World Boutique. And we were this group that applied ESG analysis across um, socially responsible investment funds and also in my case, a, a focus on corporate business relationships, so suppliers, high-profile business relationships, any business account openings we were doing. And, and that was my foray into, into ESG, and that was 10 years ago. And um, I you know, initially didn't know what I was doing. I was like, okay, I'm going to be an analyst. And then I discovered very quickly that you're an analyst, but you also get to have this profound impact by taking part in what I think is one of the most amazing parts of the work I do, the engagement piece, where we get to talk to companies on behalf of shareholders on environmental and social issues. So that's how I got in this space 10 years ago, and I'm, and I'm still here. That's great. Uh, and we'll get a, we'll get into engagement uh, throughout the conversation, but that's great background. You've actually wrestled with how to implement some of these uh, things that you're engaging companies on within, within the corporate background, which I find fascinating. Um, maybe, maybe we can stop uh, at this point and just tell us a little bit about your current job. So how does, how does a director of ESG research integrate into sort of the investment management process within the Better World Boutique? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I, you know, the way I would, I guess, define my role is there's a few key areas that I'm responsible for. One is strategy and integration, uh, analysis, and then finally engagement. So from the strategy and integration angle, it's, um, 
the ESG world is very fast paced. So risks and opportunities are constantly evolving. And what investors care about is constantly changing and how that's going to impact our company holdings. It's something we have to keep a very active uh, eye on. And so that's part of my role is what's happening, what's changing, how can we be ahead of the curve on these transitioning environmental and social issues and governance issues to ensure it's not going to affect our company value or we're divesting of companies at the right time, but that we're also looking into different spaces and unique ideas for investment that are going to support these transitions. You know, from the analysis side, that's that's really doing that deep dive into companies and their performance across a landscape where we, we look at companies through the lens of our key stakeholders. So that's our customers, shareholders, employees, the community. Um, and, you know, one stakeholder that we recognize that I think is a bit differentiated is we think of the environment as a, a stakeholder in a company's mm. value as well. So how how is a company treating their environment and, you know, what are they doing to mitigate some of the worst impacts of environmental degradation? And, you know, and then finally, it's that engagement piece. It's using our leverage on behalf of shareholders, like the power we have to have the right to vote, the power we have with the right to file shareholder proposals, um, and really get companies to move on important issues. Because what we know is, you know, we can't rely on regulation to a lot of the times move environmental and social issues. They're just, it's very slow. And we can't always right. rely on companies to understand or be acting or reacting quickly enough to these emerging issues. So this push from shareholders is so important and um, shareholder proposals are so powerful. And that engagement piece is just, it's such a key component of the work we do and not only managing risk, but, you know, like our name says, trying to create a better world in essence and trying to get these companies to do a bit more. Great. Um Maybe I'll, I'll circle back and and try to get a better sense for how you're actually managing and, and your uh, involvement in managing the investment selection, the mutual fund that that we have uh, uh, um, under the Better World uh, brand name. What's your involvement with Andrew? How do you balance off sort of this ESG research uh, mandate with more fundamental things like valuations and making sure companies are good investments? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I like to think of the team as kind of divided into two pieces. So there's four members on the team and we're like a 50-50 split. So you got Andrew mm -hmm. and Stanley who are really focused on the fundamentals and the and the traditional financial statement evaluation. And then you have myself and my colleague David Fraser and this is we're doing um, a more of a qualitative deep dive into the environmental and social performance of companies. And so, you know, our job is 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 really to look at um, how the social environmental issues that are developing, you know, on a macro and a micro level are going to affect a company and their performance uh, down the road. Uh, so what will happen is, you know, there, there's, a, there's a few different ways we, we approach this. Um, we have some key sustainability themes as a group, as a core group that we're in, interested in investing in. You know, we can think about one is like the green energy transition. Sure. And, um, you know, makes sense. Our, our fund is fossil fuel free. Uh, so, you know, so David and I, we're looking for interesting names in this space. We're looking for innovative solutions uh, to the energy transition, maybe companies that are doing some work in, in hydrogen or electric batteries. Um, and, you know, and Andrew and team are doing the same thing, but we look at it from different lenses. So we're going to say, OK, we're interested in uh, this, you know, this green energy name. How are they 
treating these core stakeholders. And we look across actually 50 indicators, probably more than when we're doing this deep dive. So that can be anywhere from like diversity to their environmental policies and programs or supply chain. We're looking at how they treat their community and their community members. We're looking at how much revenue they're earning from sustainable products and services versus, you know, products that we think might be actually detracting from a sustainable future. Uh, the carbon footprint of a company is incredibly important to us. So that's another key component of the work we're doing is, is the companies are the company's emissions aligned with reaching, um, you know, one and a half degrees warming trend or the Paris alignment goals of warming over uh, by 2030. So we're digging into that component of the work. And then of course, impact. Uh, so we look at the United Nations sustainable development goals as our benchmark for social and environmental impact. I think it's probably globally the most recognized impact framework. And right. what this allows us to do is, is to dive into a company's performance. How much of their revenue is being earned from products or services that are in essence supporting the goal of achieving these 17 goals that the United Nations has identified in achieving a more sustainable and equitable world by 2030. So that's the revenue piece. So we, we, you know, we do a dive into that, but we're also looking non-revenue activities. How are these companies, you know, off off their balance sheet, off their financials? Like, what are they doing just out of investment in a community? Um, right. Or, or you know, how are they supporting people with employment opportunities? Um, with uh, stakeholder communications, you know, if we if we think about certain sectors, particularly like energy and mining. You know, they, this is a, these are sectors that have an opportunity to do a lot of work with Indigenous and Aboriginal communities that maybe other sectors don't have that same exposure. So how are they using their position to benefit these groups, um, you know, from a social and an economic angle? So th this is the type of analysis that we do. And, and, and our work is equal. We cannot invest in a company that doesn't pass our ESG analysis. And we also can't pass right. in a invest in a company that doesn't pass our fundamental analysis. So we're looking, we're taking kind of both of these um, inputs and, and, and making the best choices. Um, and so the team works in conjunction. Uh, we work together on portfolio changes. There's lots of conversations happening. And, and as you can imagine on the ESG side, there's a lot of debate uh, because sure. issues aren't as black and, and white as, as they used to be. Um, carbon capture storage, there's you know, you hear about different um, energy sources or energy solutions to to addressing climate risk. Um, biofuels and bioenergy is something that comes up quite often. But there's a whole group of people that criticize, you know, the use of of bioenergy because it, you know, it's not sustainable. So there's so much there's so much debate that happens constantly within our own team as well, um, right. which can be. Um, which is actually a lot of fun, to be honest. It's 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 a, it's a great space to be uh, to be to be making these portfolio decisions, but also debating uh, the nuances around ethics and what's going to work in the future and what investors are looking for. But anyways, I'll stop there because I could go on forever about this. <laughs> sure. Well, let me uh, let me pick up and 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 direct uh, maybe down a different path a little bit. Uh, you referred previously in the conversation to sort of investors changing expectations. Uh, within the ESG space, we've certainly seen the industry as a whole really take uh, a hold of ESG mandates, that type of thing. What are the emerging trends that you're seeing within that ESG space, and and what are you, how are you reacting to them? Yeah, that, I mean that's a really great question. I you know I'm going to start with um, 
you know, proxy voting. And I think this has been a really interesting shift over the past couple of years. So, you know, proxy voting is is quite powerful for shareholders um, to make a change in a company, but traditionally, shareholders would just vote along management recommendations or what sure. the proxy voting service provider said, you know, like, this is how we're going to vote. And ESG considerations weren't really um, given that much value, particularly the E and the S, right? Like the environmental and the social that wasn't given a lot of emphasis. We we didn't see a lot of proposals filed about environmental and social issues. You know, governance issues were, were generally more prominent. And then you have this last proxy voting season and you see what happened at Exxon, right? You have this hedge fund group that had cl- uh, criticized Exxon's uh, climate strategy and they want enough shareholder support to oust two directors and they put two activist directors in their place. And that is powerful. That's the first time that's ever happened. And so what I think this is really giving is this emerging trend where a shareholders are now saying, we're not just going to do what the managers management is telling us to do. And we're not just going to vote along these proxy voting service providers recommendations. We're actually serious about these issues. And so for the first time, you're seeing these environmental and social proposals getting huge amounts of support. Um, and and that's going to be a huge shift. And, and, you know, for me, it's exciting. You know, I've been filing environmental and social proposals for 10 years now, and it's hard to get them passed. And for us, a success would be just getting some media attention for these proposals and driving right. that issue into um into the public profile. Um, but now we're seeing this tremendous shift, which is actually quite exciting. So I think that's a really interesting trend and, and we're going to see more of this happening. But I think, you know, another issue, and I, and I don't want to say this is a trend because it's not a trend. I think what this is, it's an issue that unfortunately wasn't getting the importance it deserved. And because of COVID, it, it now is. And so in the ESG space, environmental issues just always got more attention. And then COVID came and people all of a sudden mattered more and social issues mattered more, right? Because before everybody's like, well, we're, we're moving to automation. You know, you know, employees are going to become obsolete. Everything's going to be computerized one day. COVID happens. Look, if you don't have a healthy workforce, you just can't operate. And, and, and that's the reality of it. So companies that were kind of lagging behind on, you know, employee benefits when it came to health, on work-life balance, all of a sudden had to pivot and they had to all of a sudden, for the first time in many years, employees kind of became this number one priority stakeholder and they just hadn't been for such a long time, right? Like the environment and climate took a backseat, customers right. took a backseat. I mean, customers are so important, but you know, you had to take this backseat because you need to be operational. And so what came up with COVID was this other issue of inequity. And that's what I want to touch on because it's not a trend, but it was this issue that just wasn't getting enough importance. And um, so what happened Like in 2021, the World Bank, they termed 2021 the year of the inequality pandemic. And I can't agree with that anymore. So we think about it from, you know, when we think about inequity, I think traditionally, especially from the ESG landscape, we've thought about it from like a gender lens, right? Um, The representation of women versus men in higher ranks. And we also looked at visible minorities, like, you know, how many people of color are represented in leadership? We, we thought about it from a gender pay gap angle, but with COVID, we saw this disproportionate impact on what we would say is marginalized groups that were already struggling to be represented. Um, you saw the mass exodus of women from the workforce due to COVID issues. Women were more right. likely to experience a job loss. 
Um, and more women were considering leaving companies now than ever than before because a company's lack of response to COVID. So all this work that had been done to gain women's representation is now under threat, right? And so this is now, when I tie it back to my work, this became important because when we analyze a company, a really important metric for us is a company's gender responsive policies. If you want to maintain talent, you know, and 50% of university graduates and more than 50% of, you know, masters and PhD level graduates are now women. If you want to retain that talent, you better have policies and programs that are going to keep these women there. But then we, we think about it from the race angle, the Black Lives Matter movement, the residential school discoveries here in Canada, once again, propelled to very important issues of race. Um, the representation of colored people, reconciliation to the forefront. And these are issues that we've been talking about for years, but they're finally getting that attention they deserve. And mm. once again, tying it back into our work, how are the companies we're investing in thinking about this representation, but how are they thinking about diversity and discrimination within their own products and services? So it, it's a really important factor. And, and the reason it's important is because investors care. I've done this work for 10 years in the last year and a half, I've had, I, I can tell you every second question is about a company's diversity policies and programs. Hmm. And wow. it's, it's been incredible to see this type of interest. Um, and, and we're definitely, it's something that's so important to my team. Um, but if we continue down this angle of inequity, you know, it, it takes on other, it takes on other forms, right? So health, um, the World Health Organization talks about the unequal distribution of vaccines um, that have left developing countries vulnerable sure. due to low immunization rates, right? So last year, only 7% of people in low-income countries received a vaccine dose compared to 75% in high-income countries. Right. And so for us, when we're investing in the pharmaceutical sector, and this is a sector that has a very important position in the pandemic response, you know, one of the key social or environment social issues for this sector is access to medicine and access to medicine at affordable prices. Okay. And this is so important, right? We want to be on behalf of our investors. We want to be investing in companies that are making money that there's, you know, there's growth opportunities and they're profitable, but we also want to be investing in companies that understand their responsibility to contribute to the world's the solution, right? So if we go back to the United Nations sustainable development goals, good health and well-being and the reduction of inequality is those are two goals that we need to achieve to get to a more fair, equitable and sustainable world by 2030. So these pharma companies have a role to play in that. So a company we really liked that we picked up was AstraZeneca. And, and I know we've all seen the news about AstraZeneca versus, you know, the, the Pfizer versus, you know, whatever else sure. in terms of efficacy. What we liked about AstraZeneca is they really took a solid approach to access to medicine. Um, so they took a nonprofit approach to the global COVID pandemic, and they had right. the lowest cost vaccine available. They concentrated on developing countries where the need was the greatest, and they just very recently decided to move towards a more for-profit pricing model, which makes sense from a business strategy. But you know, this is a company that started off saying, okay, we're responsible. We have to get this vaccine into the hands of people that aren't getting it otherwise. And, um, and, and these are the type of names we're looking for. That's, that's a great example. 
Um, one thing that I promised that we'd circle back to at the beginning of the conversation, and you've referenced a few different elements on how you how you think about engagement in general. Um, and, and you talked about shareholder proposals and filing those. You talked about trying to get media attention um, or perhaps use the media attention to push different uh, uh, scenarios, depending on where investor uh, interest is. Um, maybe talk to me a little bit about engagement as a whole. Uh, you know, are those the two main forms that you use for engagement? What else you, uh, how else do you engage companies and, and how do you measure them that they're actually implementing and, 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 uh, and sticking with their word? Yeah, it, really great question. So engagement can take so many different forms. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, the engagement, the definition is just like a conversation, right? You're, you're having a communication, Sure. with the company. And, and it can start off by simply being an email question. It can be an informal meeting to talk about issues. Um, and, and generally what we like to do at the team is we, we think about engagement from, from two different, um, I guess, platforms. One is very strategic. So we have these sustainable themes that are important to us. And so we have strategic engagement themes that fall under those sustainable themes. So if we think about equity, you know, we're, we're engaging companies on, on their representation of women, you know, in leadership, but more than that, we're engaging companies to push the needle a bit more. Uh, we're still only sitting at maybe 20% overall representation in the Canadian public market in terms of women on boards. Um, and really, we should be at a level of gender parity or 50-50. So sure. this is the type of work where, you know, we do when we speak to companies is not only what are the business and the, uh, the business benefits of having more diverse representation, but Hey, like it doesn't make sense. It's 2022. Why are we still <laughs> dealing with this? Right? So there's sure. that one angle of it. Um, you know, other themes are this, this transition, um, to this green energy transition and this global commitment we're seeing from countries and companies alike, around reaching net zero climate emissions, carbon emissions by the year 2050. So we've seen a lot of very aggressive um, commitments made in a lot of sectors, but we want to understand how do you plan to get there? You know, how exactly are you going to get there? Because what we know right now is that these ambitious targets are necessary. There's no other way for us to get there unless there's this, this, you know, collective movement towards this goal. But what we also know is this movement's going to require innovation in the energy space. And a lot of that innovation doesn't exist right now. So how is your sector or your company going to get there, given what we have now? Is it going to be reducing your own emissions? Are you going to move to renewable energy? Are you going to invest in innovation? You know, How right. are you going to support this transition? What are your own goals going to look like to, to get you there? So that's kind of the engagement sphere. But what we're doing when we're having these conversations is sometimes we're not getting the traction we need. And so we, you know, we, you know, we believe we invest in these companies because we believe they're progressive and we like them and we want to work with them. So it's, it's not a wrestling match. We're not going in there and being like, all right, we're going to knock you down and you got to like, you know, put this goal in today. But what it is, it's over time conversation. So engagements can happen over many months and sometimes many years. Um, But if we're, we're talking to a company and, and they're not moving, then we have the opportunity to escalate. So if we're talking to a company and we're saying, okay, look, your emissions just aren't reducing year after year. You have this super aggressive growth strategy. You're opening all these new retail locations in the next two years. 
But what are you going to do about your, your carbon emissions? Do you have a climate risk strategy implemented as part of your growth strategy? Um, and if we're not seeing that and we're not seeing, you know, the movement or they're not responding appropriately, then we can file a shareholder proposal. And Matt, these things are so powerful. A, because nobody likes them at the company level. They just don't want to deal with shareholder proposals. So right. what tends to happen is you send this shareholder proposal and the management, um, so you send it to the board of directors, right? But it's the management of the company that gets the first stab at it. And so they're going to get a, set up a meeting with you and they're going to get all the right people on this call, you know, company executives, the CEO, whoever is in charge is going to be on this call. And they're going to say, okay, this is our position on your request. And, um, you know, and, and we're, it's like a negotiation, you know, we're going to go back and forth. They're going to say, okay, you know what, we, we, we can't set this target by next year, but maybe we can get to this place. So ultimately what we want to do is work with them, have a negotiation and withdraw the resolution. They might agree to what we're asking, or we might come to some sort of middle ground and, and it's going to be a commitment to keep on revisiting the issue. But if that doesn't happen, then we go to vote at the annual general meeting. And like I said, this is, you know, a year where environmental and social proposals are getting a lot of attention. Companies don't want them to go to vote because they tend to result in a lot of negative attention and media for the companies. Um, and like I said, shareholders are a lot more vested in these issues than they ever have. So you take it that route. Now, if that doesn't work, if you don't get enough votes and you still think it's an important issue for the company's value and on an ESG lens, um, this is really neat. The responsible investment community is a, is a great group of peers. And this is where you now would collaborate with other like-minded investors. Oh, interesting. And you would file like a collaborative proposal moving forward. So you develop this collaborative strategy. And all mm. of a sudden, it's not just our AUM or the McKenzie AUM. It's the AUM for us and all these other firms. And we're all going right. in there and saying, now there's a little bit more pressure on you to take this issue seriously. Hmm. So that's, you know, that, those are some of the steps we can take pretty much to get there. That's, that's great. Um, maybe I'll, uh, I'll ask my final question, which is a bit of an extension of what you were just talking about, and it's about greenwashing. Uh, but maybe we'll, we'll sort of confine it to the investment uh, area within Canada uh, and around the world. I mean, we've seen a lot of regulators um, come out with concerns about investment companies or investment products um, stating that they are ESG or greenwashing, quote unquote. Um and the problem seems like it's real. So what, what's your view on, on the problem? Um, regulators have come, uh, I know, in Europe, and, and there's proposals in different jurisdictions on how to combat some of this greenwashing. Uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it in general. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'll go back to like, you know, one of the key pillars of ESG is transparency. And I think this is really the benefit of this regular regulator attention on on this, the products landscape and kind of this emergence of everybody now launching an ESG product, which makes sense. The demand is there for it. Sure. But the issue is, is it being done in a meaningful way? And so, um, you know, the Canadian Securities Commission, they did a review last year of a number of products that said they were ESG. And what they found was that not everybody really did what they said they were doing. You know, they weren't necessarily integrating um, the type of analysis they were, were marketing that they were saying. And and so the, the challenge here is, and that's where the greenwashing comes into effect, right? Are you just trying to ride this wave of the general interest or that movement towards capital or is, or is this a meaningful thing? So to me, the, the regulatory 
focus on this space is very welcome. Um, I think it's going to help just, you know, funds that are really integrating ESG in a meaningful way rise to the top and, you know, they're going to be recognized appropriately and funds that aren't, you know, will fall a bit to the bottom, I, I hope. And, um, you know, I think the other value that it brings is um, it, it really, I think, helps uh, neutralize some of the criticism around ESG investing. You know, I've seen a lot of that come up in the last few years, and it's particularly around greenwashing. You know, anybody can jump on, you know, say we're doing this from a sustainability lens, but, right. you know, we believe in measure, report, verify when, when we look at companies, you know, if a company is saying they're doing something on, on a social landscape or an environmental landscape, you know, how do they measure it? Are they reporting it? And is that verified? And so a, a way we can see that verified is, and that now I'm talking from the company lens, but is getting third-party assurance. And it's similar from the product lens. I think from a from a regulatory view, you're going to start getting this third-party assurance on products, which is important. Um, but, you know, that's why you have like funds like ours, the Better World One, where you just, you have like a team of in-house talents that's done this for a year and it's, it's really integrated in a meaningful way. We don't rely on scores from rating service providers. Like it's, it's a real deep dive. And, um, you know, I think this is really what investors are looking for. And, and then you tie in that engagement piece. It just makes it that much more meaningful. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's a great move. Um, I'm excited for it. It's going to make our jobs a little bit more harder, but I, I, I feel like we're sure. already doing a good job with the transparency piece. So it should be an easy, easy transition for us. Well, Shelly, uh, thanks so much for spending the time with me. I really appreciate you walking us through uh, what exactly you, you do and, and your openness to the enhanced scrutiny that's surely in the pipeline from the regulators. So thanks again, Shelly. Thanks for having me, Matt. Cheers. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 